Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio, featuring The Crew, where a former pro football player and a D3 All-Star use strength and conditioning as an excuse to talk about anything but. Now here's John and Tex. Hey, Power Athlete John, what's happening? Thanks for joining us on another episode of Power Athlete Radio. <laughs> Keep I mean, going. great intro. Did, I mean, is that intro good or is it a little subdued? Do no, you need... you've got more panache than you had last episode. Oh, you think more panache than last episode? I thought I was panacheful. I love how you make up words. <laughs> uh, we, you had a couple interview intros. We'll get to interviews in a second. Intros last episode because you threw out your Philly sports radio. Oh man, jock. I think you got to be in the mood for that type of stuff. I think just coming on, I, I really appreciate kind of, you know, big time podcasts that just start talking kind of like we do. Uh-huh. I mean, should we go to like a pre-recorded intro? A pre- well, we kind of have that. Callie Is, introduces isn't it Callie us. Callie just lambasting us? Uh, yeah. yeah which, which is fine. Yeah. And depending on the guest, sometimes she burns the guest unless they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, story checks out. So we oh, are doing a Q&A for, uh, for our hotline. For those of you guys that are not familiar, we have this thing called the Power Athlete Hotline. Mm-hmm. And you can find it at 929-464-464. 929-ing-ing. Zero. Yep. So you can call up the hotline, leave us a message, and we will answer your questions. Maybe, if they're good. Uh-huh. If they suck, eh, we're just going to listen to them and laugh. But if they're good and it's something that we can put on with a little shtick, to quote McQuilkin, but if we can come on and it's good content and we can use it, we're going to rap about it. So Yeah, and we also encourage you to leave reviews on iTunes or your podcast listening platform and try to be funny. I think you are funnier than us. If you leave listener. a five-star review, we will read the funniest one. We wrote one last episode where the, obviously the guy wasn't digging on my intros, but you know what that means? More intros. Uh-huh. Whatever, like when you say, hey, I don't want to eat any more oh, of this, yeah, what are we going to do? We're going to keep making it. Yeah, don't tell us we suck at something because then we're just going to keep doing it. Yeah. But then I guess that's how we get better. Uh, yeah, I think you get better just through having the opportunity of doing the intros. And then before you know it, we don't suck. But we're going back in time to lead off this show. Yeah, well, what I've asked Chris to do is I want him, I, I asked him to go back in time and find Power Athlete Radio's first review. 2014. Uh, we're, let's see, 2013. Ooh, October 2013. Here we go. Bring it. Bring uh, the action. Powerfully distracting. <laughs> Three stars. Guys, the audio is the only negative. Not only does it kind of echo, but everyone tends to talk over one another because they aren't in the same room and see when the other person is finished talking from a listener's standpoint this is distracting all else solid well what he forgets was we were in a small office in costa mesa california we had one mic we were sitting around with some just skull candy headphones that we'd get given for free uh we were trying to zoom people in some people called in and like there was a delay so a lot of times where we were talking over each other Mm -hmm. it was because the delay was recording in kind of a weird way where we thought we were being concurrent in the conversation, but it just sounded off. And then we would just put it out. 
Like there was yeah. no editing, nothing. It just went straight out. And then it was uh, finally when Callie was like, hey, uh, I listened to podcasts. And we're like, really? Because at that point, I'd never listened to a podcast. And she's like, I listened to podcasts and this is dog shit. Let me help. And so then Callie's job became to edit and clean up the podcast. And she's done a fantastic job. Because Amazing. this review came in three months later. It's like a punch to the face. Five stars. Tons of applicable information, knowledgeable guests, and witty banter make this an awesome podcast. January 2014. Wow. So we've been doing it since January 2014. We've been five-star worthy since then, before then. Well, we've always been five-star worthy. I just think that the our Achilles heel was the technology aspect. It took a while for us. But 2013 podcast, everybody sucked. Yeah, and especially with Luke like digging in the trash trying to find like a mix board and like I mean, Craigslist, like the, uh, like there was no like, Hey, let's go down to, you know, stereo city and actually get a Speaker real setup. city. <laughs> I'm worth three and a half million dollars. The government knows about. So, uh, yeah, no, our, our setup was so ghetto. It was, it was pretty rough. Well, now we're here in this beautiful studio. Yeah. Power athlete studio. Power With athlete some, uh, you're very well lit, John. Uh, we have added a few more lighting. I mean, you know, the thing is, is these things are going to go on YouTube and we're going to start pushing these things out in terms of content on YouTube. And I think with it is, you know, we got to have a, not only a cool backdrop, which, you know, we've added some stuff. There's the first buck that I ever shot on this property and my good friend, Johnny Cash, you know, helping me along with his, uh, one finger salute and some of the other stuff. So it's looking good in here. I, I got some other stuff in my ad. I'm, I'm going to clean this up a little would bit. Would you say this room, if somebody tunes in to YouTube, Power Athlete Radio for the first time, leaves a good impression? I like to think so. I mean, they're probably thinking, I wonder where those guys are at. Texas, Austin. Austin anyway, Texas. that leads into our question. Our hotline wasn't too hot, but our discussions during training were, and we knew this would make a very powerful podcast for many of you out there and we're going to get into first impressions john wellborn was kind <laughs> enough to drop some knowledge on uh, yeah. nate dog and i during training about first impressions and there are some one-liner gems in there yeah. that would make john wooden jealous yeah my dad was uh as you know my, my dad passed away three years ago on february 28th and um not only was my dad uh you know, super smart, just really impactful in my life. If you guys have listened to the podcast at all, you've heard me mention him. But he was always good for dropping little bits of knowledge, but never in like a positive constructive like constructive way. There was never like, hey, here's a here's something for a learning opportunity. I'm gonna give you some advice. It's gonna help you in life. It was always done uh very backhanded and almost kind of mean spirited. And uh I I told him a story once I remember it was um, after I retired from the NFL, we were getting to go to an event and I had slimmed down a bunch. You know, I didn't have to be 300 plus pounds and I threw this suit on and it was way too big. And I was like kind of freaking out a little bit. And I'm like, dad, what do you think? You think I could wear it? And he's like, uh, he's like, it's better to not show up than show up in an ill-fitting suit and have people remember you that you look like an idiot. <laughs> and I was like, okay, uh, I guess I'm either not going or I'm going to find something else to wear. And, um, like just growing up when we were kids, um, you know, my dad was a criminal defense attorney and we always went to a lot of events. I remember even as a young kid, he's like, hey, you don't want people to think you're stupid. So go over, look somebody in the eye, shake somebody's hand. And I remember we, you know, my, shook my dad's hand as a little kid and was like, make sure you look people in the eye and, re you know, say your name and repeat their name. Like, nice to meet you, John Walborn. What was your name? 
and then they say it, then you say it back to them. That way you say your name, you hear them say you, because he's like, if you don't, you're going to forget their name. And if you don't say your name, they're going to forget it. And then it's going to be a lost interaction. So like look them in the eye and they'll remember you. And so like having a firm handshake, looking somebody in the eye, um, you know, introducing yourself. Like there was a lot of things on that idea of like first impressions. And I remember years later kind of asking him um, about it. And he's like, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff is for you, but a lot of it is reflective on your parents. Like, and he goes, you'll see as you get older, when you'll meet kids uh, that are, you know, like understand, you know, like shaking your hand, looking in the eye, manners, like know how to hold a conversation. All you're going to think of is, oh, their parents did a good job. These kids were raised well. And, uh, you know, before I had kids, like there was no way for me to understand that. But now, you know, now that I have kids and, you know, we go to like, you know, kid parties and you meet parents and you'll meet the kid and you meet the parents and you're like, oh, this kind of makes a lot of sense now. But I think like that part, and I even tell my own kids, I'm like, you have to remember good manners and making a good impression and treating people well and being helpful and all these things uh, reflect upon you, but ultimately reflect upon us as a parent. Because if you go out and act like an asshole, all they're going to think is that their parent, that your parents did a poor job of raising you. And that's not the case. Like, um, and, uh, I find myself not using the same tone and really the way the <laughs> delivery of my dad, because well, you gotta wait till they're older, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, but my dad was like that my entire life. Like I had like, there were things and I'm not going to say some of the stuff on the podcast, but he would say things and like, you know, we were kind of like taken back because it was, you know, it was very to the point and like it was very condescending. Like you guys, I joke with you guys all the time. You're like, you know, whenever we start kind of making fun of each other or ripping, they're like, dude, why do you get so vicious so quick? I'm like, you guys didn't grow up with a really smart, condescending father the way I did. And because of that, I was always very well prepared for not only a battle of wits, but if somebody wants to get into a verbal confrontation, like I'm much more skilled in, in a in, in this kind of, you know, situation, like sitting across from somebody, uh, I'm obviously, you know, I'm decent within, you know, within writing. Uh, I really don't interact and try to battle people on the internet because you're never going to convince anybody. Like, um, it was funny. I posted a picture of, uh, the new, uh, farm truck I picked up that 1964 Mark Ripto gave us that sticker that said secede on the back. And so I threw it on there as kind of a joke and I posted a picture on it. And some dude left a fucking snarky comment being like, you know, you need to rethink this. And I was like, I'm not looking for your counsel. And who the fuck are you? Like, it just, it was funny. And he's like, is this your first day on the internet? I'm like, no, it's not. But I also see people post things on social media. And if I don't agree with them or I don't really like them, I don't even leave a comment. I just scroll past it and don't give it second thought. I wouldn't even waste my time to really comment on something. Do, do you fear now the internet is setting back from the value of that first impression? Well, what, what I'm amazed by... Or the skill of a first impression? Um, man, I, I don't know if the first impression on the internet is as valuable. Because, I mean, think about how many people we've met virtually, right, through, the, you know, through podcasts and whatever. I mean, even people we've had interacted with through Zoom and like, the, like this podcast. Uh, and then we've met them in person and had such a like, rich experience. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the experiences I've had, like let's say let's talk about Derek Woodsky or or you know Bert Soren or you know um, uh, Matt Vincent or any of the guys. I mean, I I met these guys through different mediums, and then as we sat in person, then you realize that that connection. So I think that there is uh, a lack of connection through the internet, 
and also through you know these situations. I mean, it's for the same reason that Joe Rogan does all of his podcasts in person. You know, that personal connection of sitting with somebody and you know mannerisms and seeing the face and you know hearing the size and you know being able to read somebody is so important. Whereas you know the you know a two dimensional screen doesn't allow you to see much of that. No. Did did Bob Wellborn ever speak of like body language or posture? Yeah. Uh, big thing was, uh, no slouching. So my dad, uh, was real big on like, you're going to be tall. So stand up straight. So what happens when guys are tall, they tend to slouch. Yeah. And females as well. Cause they sprout early. Yeah. And then they, and then they start rolling shoulder and Mm -hmm. they try to like shorten themselves. My dad was like, be proud of being tall, stand up, look down on people. He's like, now don't look down your nose at him. But like, so a lot of times, and even if somebody's short, this is kind of funny, instead of me like tipping my head, what I'll do is actually just kind of spread my stance and kind of shorten my that way. So I always kind of stand up straight. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah makes sense. Well, I, and, but uh, what was nice about playing in the NFL was that the majority of my friends were all pretty tall. So it like, you end up kind of standing around tall people all the time. But um, I know uh, I've been around a lot of tall people and they tend to slouch. So having good posture was always important. Um, when I was a kid, I remember I, I had to be five, six, seven years old. My dad gave me this book called Manly Manners. And it was like a 1950s manners book. And I had to read this stupid book about this kid. And he like goes through all this stuff. And it was, uh, it was just kind of impactful. And I was like, Dad, is this, stuff, like, is this stuff still applicable? And I remember having a conversation with him for you know, years later. And he's like, it's more applicable today than it was then because parents were so much more engaged with their children. And I was like, I don't buy that. And oh, wow. um, he was like, well, I mean. I found he, it on Amazon, John. Oh, did you? When, what year did it come out? 1940, January yep. 1st, 1940. So. Ruth Crowther. Yeah. And when I say Amazon, uh, it's only antiques are for sale. Yeah, so no, it's big a, money. Yeah, it, it's an old book, man. And I remember having to read that, but. Um, it's the same stuff I tell my kids, but I have daughters and I have a son, but, um, for my kids and it's, and it's, it's different. Like I grew up with three boys. So I think that maybe, uh, there was a certain, I don't know, maybe the time, but a little bit more gruff, a little more coarse. Whereas I think with my daughters, like there's a big thing. Like I talk about like, you know, if somebody like being helpful, helping your mom, like, like yesterday, uh, you know, um, I've been teaching my daughter to cook. So, uh, she starts with the vegetables. So, um, I cooked, uh, we did ribs and I did some pork chops for them and she had to cook uh, cauliflower and broccoli. So like we're over there like taking her through and I'm like, you start with the vegetables. That's where I started. I started on vegetables. My job was to cut everything and I did all the vegetables and then I ended up working my way up into the, uh, into the protein courses and that evolution of cooking. And it was funny. Um, I talked to my mom yesterday and she's like, uh, asked me, she's like, you know, um, do the girls make dinner? And I was like, no, she's like, they're nine years old. They should be able to make dinner. And I asked my mom, I'm like, how, how old were you when you first remember making dinner? And she's like, I helped my mom. And then, and I did too, from the time I was three and four years old, like I helped my mom, I was like her little sous chef. But, um, and my mom, my mom telling me you have to learn to cook because girls will not know how to cook and you're going to starve. So that was like a huge <laughs> thing she always said to us. But, um, well, Doris Wellborn one-liners, that's a whole different podcast. Oh, fuck, dude. That's like, <laughs> we, we could just bring her on. The problem is, is that she would not be honest enough. She'd just sit here and be like, who are these people listening to this? And why are you going to tell them this stuff? 
But uh, so she called me yesterday and she's like, you know, do the girls know how to cook? Like they should, you know, they should know how to cook. They should know how to do this. They should be able to bake. And she's like the, the fact that you're, um, you know, you and your wife are pretty capable and it's just easier for you to do it isn't teaching them anything. So like a, a lot of times with stuff like, ah, oh, don't worry, I'll just do it. It's faster. And, but the problem is, is that's not educating them. Um, I think I've, I've told the story uh, before when my dad was sick, he was going through some chemo or he went through his chemo. Uh, for cancer, uh, I took him to an appointment. I had like two hours to kill while he was in there getting, you know, uh, poison pumped into him. And uh, there was a movie theater and I went across the street and like the only movie playing was Black Panther. So I, I roll in there and I'm watching, you know, like trying to like, you know, take a few minutes to kind of get my, my mind off of this like awful thing that my dad's going through. And like there's the scene in there when he like goes back to like the kind of the spirit world deal uh-huh. and he makes the comment like, you know, the job of the father is to prepare the child from the day the father is not there. And so like I like heard that and it was pretty impactful. And I started thinking back on like all the things that my dad had taught me and like all the successes and the failures and like every conversation we had from you know, me calling him on the phone. Um, I remember I had a, I had to write a rhetoric paper on fear. We had to pick an emotion. I picked fear. And at the time I was taking Ken Jowett's class um, on, you You know, uh, he, he was a political science guy. He was one of Reagan's advisors to Russia. And uh, I went and as I was talking about my, um, about this paper, I was going to write with my dad. Uh, he made a great point. He's like, you know, you should, go to Ken Jowett's office hours, talk to him and ask him for something that had to do with fear, like something in the American, you know, like well, within America. And you could actually probably write one paper and use it twice. And I was like, that's a great idea. So I had this fear paper I was writing for rhetoric. I went and I talked to Ken Jowett and he was like, the greatest fear in, in, in recent history is, is, you know, McCarthyism. So I wrote a pretty decent paper on like Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism and the Red Scare based on fear with the rhetoric and actually used it, turned it in for Ken Jowett's class and used it in my rhetoric class. So I got to two for one on that. And, um, you know, and like that was, you know, the, you know, having a very, very smart, intelligent dad who was, you know, current and all this stuff, it was really, it was good. But yeah, that idea of like, you know, put in a good impression, have people remember you because it's important. And sure enough, um, you know, he was you know, not only very receptful or, uh, um, you know, like receptive to it, but like that was a, a good impression. So, um, now my dad was always very good on like coaching us for, you know, not only how to, you know, how to be a man, but, uh, you know, how to interact with people, like how to tie a tie, how to dress well. I mean, at my dad's funeral, um, as I got to like meet a bunch of like his friends and people that had known him for years, everybody had the same thing. Like, dude, your dad was always so impeccably dressed like he never came in his suits were always so you know expensive nice suits uh had the best ties always carried a really nice briefcase oh his porsche was always clean always drove a black porsche so uh it just was amazing and like you know you're like i remember as a kid um my dad showing me how to shine shoes so like he had a shoe box and like clean them up and i had to shine shoes and um you know he'd like make me you know hey i need you to shine these and I would do it because, not because I wanted to, but because he asked me. But also, years later, like, knowing how to do these things, it wasn't just that I was shining his shoes, he was teaching me something. And if I were to ask people, be like, oh, do you know how to shine shoes? Oh, no, your dad didn't teach you to do that? Oh, okay, well, maybe your dad didn't have a job where he had to wear nice shoes every day. Or he just went and had somebody else. But it's like ironing a shirt. Do you know how to iron a shirt? 
like a like a oh, collar shirt. Time. Yeah, I, I know how to iron a shirt. I watched my dad iron shirts, and I used to iron shirts for him, and how much starch to use, and all that, because he didn't take all the shirts to the uh, the dry cleaners. So, all these little skills, which are probably called old fashioned, are just you know things that you learn from your parents. Just for like the same right, like I had to go cut a bunch of trees down, and I'm yelling at my kids to get out there and come help. Not that they wanted to, but at some point, like these are things that they might have to do themselves. Mm-hmm. And any, because imagine going into a courtroom. And like posturing up and owning that room, did he give you, ever give you any advice, or was it more of a representation of how to to stand and deliver and and be memorable? Um, I think uh, part of that is uh, is dressing well. Like, don't dress like an asshole, which is something he used to tell me all the time. He used to get pissed at me uh, when we would travel, and he's like, "What? You know." You know, you have money. Why aren't you going and getting nice suits made? And I was like, ah, Dad, I'm sitting on an airplane. Like, the only time we wear the suit is, like, walking in. He's like, yeah, but think about how many times you see somebody get off the bus and they walk into the stadium. And he's like, for that, you know, two or three seconds when you see people wearing these outfits, he's like, it, it's impactful. And so I think, like, maybe part of my rebellion was uh, um, <laughs> uh, kind of dressing like an asshole for a lot of years. But then you get to the point where you're like, ah, just it's all right. I'll just go get a couple suits made. And, um, you know, how you wear them, like how I like my suits, the colors, you know, how to match the shoes, all that. Like, this is all stuff that I learned from him, you know. And, um, but I, I think that stuff's important. And unfortunately, uh, I don't know who teaches you that. I mean, I guess you could get on Instagram and you could probably look it up. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of this stuff is really, uh, you know, things that are taught to you along the way as long as you're receptive. And, yeah, that's, that's, Solid messaging. My next question for you, and you've been providing a lot of interviews for folks. How? What advice would you give people to make an impression for, say, a job interview to be memorable, but not only be memorable, I mean, rise above the rest? Um, man, uh, I know, I know for at, at least for me, um, you know, things, and like, I, I, I don't know, like, like, like first impressions, for example, like if somebody comes and trains with us, you know, like, can you jump into the group? Do you understand the social dynamics? Have you lifted weights? Are you a complete beginner? Are you going to hurt yourself? Like, do you understand your limitations? I think it just shows competence. Uh, I mean, it would be able to come in and, you know, shake somebody's hand, look them in the eye, be like, Hey, what are we doing today? Great. I'm training your place. Let's go. So I think there's uh, you know, great confidence in that. Um, but I think when you, you know, walk into a job interview, one is, you know, look the part, you know, that was a big part in the NFL. And I always kind of joke about it. I always wanted, uh, you know, when people saw me be like, Oh, you play in the NFL. Well, that makes sense. Like that was a big thing. Whereas a lot of times I, you know, be like, you play in the NFL. God, this guy looks like he drives a beer truck. (laughs) So like that idea of like, you know, look the part, you know, are you dressed well? Um, you know, do you come in, you know, what does your resume look like? Is it, is it, is it done well? Do you have a coffee stain on it? You know, do you come in, you shake your hand, have you put together a, a little elevator speech, a little bit of canned speech so that you, you know, I mean, that's something we've, you know, talked about here. Can you introduce yourself and talk for three or four minutes? Yeah. Um, TC, shout out to you. It took you about six months to finally well, have two minutes of, uh, you, you know what, but I, I honestly think, <laughs> um, the interesting thing, um, I really enjoyed college. I, I, I had a blast. I mean, I, 
Like whenever I hear, you know, people being like, oh, college is dead. Nobody's going to college anymore. You know, uh, people aren't going to go pay exorbitant amounts of fees for online schools. And then you hear this, you know, coddling the American mind and, you know, the, uh, the degeneration of this and you go through all this stuff and, you know, uh, you know, nobody's going to go to college anymore. And I, I, uh, I follow a, a bunch of different pages, you know, for welding and fabrication on Instagram. And there's always this like, ah, oh, don't waste your time. Go to college, get a, you know, get into a trade. And I think a trade is an excellent avenue to go. But I really personally enjoyed my college career and loved the fact that I got to go to Berkeley. Um, I loved the classes I took. I mean, the interactions, uh, the work, the reading. Like, I, I can't say there was a single day where I didn't, you know, obviously the work was a little overwhelming playing football. But I can't remember ever being like, I hate this. I don't want to do it. Like, every day I got to go to school. Every day I got to go learn from really intelligent people and have cool conversations and then walk up the hill, go bang weights and then go play football. And, um, that experience of just being able to take the classes. Cause I think in high school, you know, you pretty much like, Hey, everybody takes the same stuff. But when you get to go to college, you actually get to specialize in things that you're interested in. And I feel that that was such a much more rich experience when I actually got to, uh, try to, you know, study and, and compete in classes that I was interested in. Um, and I remember when I was like looking at different schools, I remember, uh, when I talked to my dad about it, he's like, you know, you should go to Berkeley. And like, I remember like, what about USC? He's like, I went there. Don't go be an SC stooge. Don't do that. <laughs> like go someplace where you hang a degree on your wall that is forever impactful. And that was my big thing with going to Berkeley. And then I did, I loved every ounce of it. Um, I just, uh, you know, and then obviously getting to go on playing the NFL was, was, uh, was a great experience but not as I would say is intellectually challenging. And it, for some dudes, well, I mean, but, but for me, uh, I actually felt like I got dumber over the course of my NFL career. Like I would still read, but I didn't have that constant. And I'll tell you this, like now that I've seen like NFL players, like going to college, like the one dude was in med school. I'm like, fuck. Oh, and he had to hide it. <sighs> dude, I should have, I should have found, uh, I should have found a law school in Philly and I should have. Oh, there's Paul plenty. Time. I know. And uh, it, it was just I, like, it was kind of like um, when I remember years ago, my dad was like, you should start a website. And I was like, well, what am I going to put on the website? He's like, I don't know. Like people have websites. You should get a website. <laughs> if he had just said to me, hey, you know what you should do? You should post your training. You should go and just every day have a blog post, post your training. Like all he would, and I would have been like, that's a great idea. I'll do that. And we could have had that for years. And I, and I would have loved to have had a website and a blog to chronicle all the training and the workouts and everything we did with Roth. That would have been incredible. Mm -hmm. So I think some of that stuff is just being culturally relevant and understanding it. Like if I said to my kids today, like, hey, you guys should have a website. What should I put on it? I'd be like, what are you interested in? What books are you reading? Just, just write as a diary. Talk about the things that are interesting to you and put it out there. Um, the other big one, too, is not only... Um, you know, obviously the first impression of meeting somebody, you know, looking the part, shaking their hand, you know, all the other stuff. But um, the other, the impression, and we see this all too often, is in your written word. So when somebody writes something and we read it and that's their first impression of reading that author or reading somebody's blog or reading something. Oh, or the, the objective on a resume or the yep. mission, whatever they lead off with. Honestly, I don't even look at the rest of it. Yep. So. Well, it's funny when I was going through all the resumes for the marketing director, I was just reading the cover letters. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and if you didn't submit a cover letter, which was actually specified in the, you have to write a cover letter. If they didn't submit it, I just deleted them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm only interested in the cover letter. That 
while we're on, my grandfather, this is funny. So he said, if I was ever in a hiring position, take half the resumes of the applicants and throw them out. Because you never want somebody that's unlucky working for you. <laughs> that's a uh, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, something along the like I can't remember exactly, but just like a laughable um, piece. You know, my uh, my my oldest brother uh, Rob, he's uh, real real successful in terms of like uh, his business. He does uh, insurance, so he went to law school. Didn't work out for him. He didn't really enjoy it. And got into this insurance gig and has a you know pretty thriving book and very successful with it. But he went to a bunch of like kind of leadership and, and different kind of mentoring courses. And uh, his joke is always like, uh, and he's, he always tells people, especially in business, like, are you the chicken or the pig? And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, for breakfast, you're the chicken or the pig. The chick, the chicken contributed, but the pig was committed. Mm-hmm. And so his whole thing is like in business, in life, you got to be the pig. You got to be willing to, you know, be slaughtered for breakfast. So that idea of commitment was important. But yeah, he's been very. And, and my my middle brother Eddie um, is a criminal defense attorney and and one of the best in in Southern California. And you know, does all that high end uh, murder stuff. If you guys are watching Dateline or anything, and you see that last name come up, that's my older brother. So uh, both my brothers have been very very successful. But I, I can't imagine if they weren't or we weren't successful, the amount of shit that I would have had to listen to my dad talk to us. <laughs> like like that like that piece where people are like, oh, I'm going to rebel. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to try to kick ass so I don't have to listen to this. Do you feel there was anything professionally or socially that college did not prepare you for? Um, I like went you to had college, to learn on the streets? Uh, I went to college with with uh, really one goal to re to learn to read and write to the best of my ability. Mm. So when I went on my recruiting trip to Cal, um, I told them I was interested in going to law school. Bolt Hall was you know is probably one of the best in the country, is one of the best in the country, and they set me up with uh, the old dean of the law school, a guy named Adrian Cragen, who was a tax guy, and uh, pretty interesting. He as as we sat down to talk. Um, you know, I said, Hey, I'm interested in, in coming to Berkeley. I play football. I want to, you know, come to law school. And he made a great point to me. He's like, your job in college is to learn to read and write to the best of your ability. And he goes, if you can do that, you'll do fine in law school where he goes, where people struggle is when they take something that doesn't force them into reading huge volumes of work and, uh, and really being, you know, very proficient writer. So he's the one that recommended rhetoric. And he's like, well, there's this ma- there's a major here at Berkeley called Rhetoric. You should check it out. So I took Rhetoric 1A and 1B, and I was hooked. And I was like, this is great. I get to read a bunch of books. And I get to write a bunch of papers. And, um, you know, everything was kind of Socratic method. We'd sit down. We'd start talking. And it was like all like all the classes were kind of open, uh, open form discussions. And then we were given assignments. I went home, read books, and wrote papers. And it was perfect for me. Yeah, the... I went back after grad school. I got the opportunity to be an adjunct professor. And this is right when I got on with you for CrossFit football seminars, mm-hmm. adjunct professor at Marymount university teaching like intro to personal training, nice. or something along those lines. And, uh, I was sticking by the book to the curriculum probably about halfway through and realized like, what are you kids? Like, what are your majors? And there was a lot of nursing students in there, some fit health and fitness health sciences deals. And find out, like, honest question, what the hell do you want to do after you get out of college? So immediately I went off curriculum. Mind you, I only lasted one semester in this position. And the rest of the 
course that I was leading was get a job, get an internship. Mm-hmm. Is this is what you want to do? I'm going to force you to get into an internship. This turns into a pass or fail course. Uh, like the the final was, um, f- you had to turn in five interviews that you acquired, and then you have to get yourself an internship or a job. So that was that's what it turned into. And then like we did mock interviews, and just if their aim was the fitness profession, I was going to make sure they actually wanted to do that because the per- grind of a personal trainer. That sucked. Why would you go to Marymount, Marymount, which is a pretty... Uh, it's a Division three university, which in the grand scheme of things but is not it's, as... It's pretty spendy, Oh, it's it? a private school, for yeah, sure. It, it's an expensive private school. Mm-hmm. Are you really going to Marymount University to learn to be a personal trainer? Well, I mean, that was part of that curriculum at that time for undergrad. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, but I, I love that job because it was perfect for grad school sure. and, and coaching collegiately. Uh, and supplementing your income for what you want to do. But at the same time, like I wanted to make sure these kids were set up and uh, I still receive messages. There's a few people who now turned it into their career or that actually set them up to change their major to make sure. So even if they were a nursing student in this personal training course, okay, well set yourself up to like apply to get this job to make sure that you don't waste that Marymount money because it ain't cheap. Nope. And uh, yeah, that that was the course. But then, I mean, I wasn't exactly asked back to that because, I mean, the students, I mean, they they gave teacher reviews at the end of it. And I don't know. Some kids dug it. Some kids didn't. Yeah, but and this is something I think all too often, especially playing football in college. How many guys did I play with who wasted their opportunity and didn't, and didn't, didn't get a degree or, you know, got pushed into some useless major that has no application outside of the real world. So uh, I don't necessarily know if college prepares you for the rest of the world, but I don't know if, if that's the, if that's the end game. Um, for me, it was learning to read and write. Um, I went to go play in the NFL, which technically wasn't a great use of, of my college, <laughs> the college degree, but it's since then after, after retiring, uh, you know, what we do here in terms of, you know, presentation and, you know, uh, being an order and, you know, rhetorician, whatever you want to call it, but being able to write and put all this stuff together, I think it was well-schooled for that. Um, I think for, uh, for my kids, something that I've really stressed for them, which is something that I don't know if they stress as much in public school is the ability to work in groups. So I think like the idea, and if I could go back and really change how schools kind of are run, I would make everything much more project oriented and teach them to work in small groups with like different pieces and leadership and that. I think that's a lot more impactful than this kind of autonomous setup and common core. Like as my kids were in, uh, was we were teaching math for the common core stuff. I was like, man, this is confusing. Like, why are you guys teaching it? And you know, that's been a, a, an issue. But I really think the one thing that I, that we did well in college is that you learned to work in teams, and also we would have a ton of groups. Yeah, well, I mean, I take I took infinitely more away from my athletic career that I now apply to real world. I mean, we didn't have training, but it was more the the leadership, the communication, leading up, leading down, communicating a message, creating a message with the team, and then I mean presenting. So as as the captain, you're you're standing up, you're giving it the pregame rah rah, and as awkward and awful as it was, it was still preparing me now to 
know how to do that for any other team that I need to lead or stand sure. and command a room. Um, so that was that was infinitely more representative of what I needed to be in my career than my specific education. Uh, I think the CrossFit football seminar oh, uh, yes. was probably one of the best learning pieces for me personally. I know we went in and taught for people, but showing up and public speaking, walking into a room, being able to deliver material and you know not speaking from cue cards and being able to run the flow of that. I mean, in the beginning, it was a little rough. Um, I, I still, For us all, John. I still, <laughs> I still think back to the first public one I gave in Cooksville, Tennessee. It was so bad that Greg Glassman actually left 15 minutes in with a laugh. Like just got up and went, huh, we'll be fine. And walked out because uh, the first one I gave was pretty good. But I bombed so badly in my opening talk that uh, all of CrossFit HQ had all showed up, which was hilarious because they all showed up in like black Suburbans. I thought like the you know FBI was coming to get us. And he, you know he sits down and all of his you know sycophants sit around him. And I get up and I fucking bomb. Like it was so bad. Like I felt like a comedian that was like people were walking out. Is and this thing on? Yeah, I'm like, hey, ladies and germs, I just flew in and boy, are my arms tired, right? Like it was awful. And so he just gets up and leaves. And like, like with a laugh, and as soon as they all left, I was like, oh, thank God. And was he like doing this with his fingers? Well, yeah, because I think he was nervous about us, you know, doing well. And, um, you know, the one thing that, you know, a narcissistic, egotistical, uh, you know, narcissistic personality disorder, you know, megalomaniac, uh, the worst thing he fears is that somebody else is good. So he leaves with a laugh. And as soon as he left, I think I paused the door shut and I was like, let me start over. And I started over and was fine. And that's when I delivered the whole uh, general, general specific and then specific training model that I, that we can't, I'd come up with. And oh, there it was makes so, great sense. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I put all this stuff together, but for that first 15 minutes when he was there, it was bombsville and it was good because it showed me that one, uh, you know, uh, we talked about genetics, geography and opportunity, opportunity being the biggest uh, you know, driver for success in terms of evolution. Like, did have you had the opportunity? Like, if I uh, needed to get up and give this presentation or I needed to talk, how many opportunities have I got up to give this material? That first one bombed. I knew it bombed, and then from then on, I knew I had to put together a much better you know experience. Um, once we got into coaching, it was fine, but for the most part, you know, I owned a commercial gym for a little bit. We had trained people. By the time Cross of Football came around. Like I was not what you would call a well-seasoned coach or you know educator in any way. So uh, then getting all of these opportunities to get out and like every weekend travel and teach and teach and teach till the point where you hit it and you're like, dude, I got this. Like I'm mm -hmm. good now. But uh, I think that was for me uh, really, really impactful and just an incredible opportunity. Oh, and I, I need to thank you for the opportunities <laughs> that I remember, you provided. I remember you bombing. Oh, and, and, and I, remember, I remember you walked in the back and you're like, how was it? I'm like, it was awful. And you were like, oh, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, you're going to keep getting up there and being awful until you're not awful. So either you get used to getting booed off a stage or you fucking change your mindset and you make this great. And it was, I, I told you the same. I told Luke the same. I told everybody. And all of a sudden I get up there and within, you know, not too long after all of a sudden I'm sitting up there and I'm like, shit, these guys are better than me at this. The, I did get a compliment at Deuce, spoke at Deuce Gym in Venice, California recently. And did you drop a deuce? No. Oh. There? No. It was it went it went well. I'm very critical. I'll just yeah. say it went well. 
versus my personal notes. But anyway, the compliment the woman paid a woman paid me afterwards. She's like, she's taller than me. She's like, you're not very tall, <laughs> but you you really own the room. And I was like, uh, thank you, because just like putting me down to uh, I guess pay the compliment. <laughs> to look at her and be like, gave her like the Deuce Bigelow. You're a huge bitch. No. <laughs> Holy shit, it's Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, man, that's a good rewatch we should uh, put out there. Dude, that, uh, dude, yeah, that's a great one. Oh. When he yeah. takes her day, like like the narcoleptic chick, he takes her dancing with a helmet. Yeah. yeah. Man, it's been a long time. Yeah, Deuce Bigelow. What is uh, Eddie Griffin? Is that the uh, comedian? Yeah, you remember that? He's like, I know Antoine. He's like, I ashed on his carpet. He made me pick it up with my anus. <laughs> Yeah, oh God, there's some funny, funny ones in there. <laughs> yeah, Rob Schneider. <laughs> yeah, he's he, uh, great. Yeah, he's he's a particular taste of humor. <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, but uh, to wheel this back, I think as a parent, um, it's the crux is put on you as an individual, uh, as the parent, to shepherd your kids across and be able to provide them the skills for them to be successful. And just hoping that public education or, you know, when you send them off to school is going to do that, um, I think you're going to be sorely disappointed. I think as a parent, you have to, you know, have your kids see you get up, work hard, so they have to learn work ethic. Unfortunately, you can't teach anybody work ethic. You can only show them work ethic, and then they they take to it. So the idea of, like, instilling a work ethic, ah, I think that's a hard one. I think what they have to do is they have to see you as the individual, be a hard worker and then they have to see that like it's real hard to talk about creating and instilling work ethic as I'm sitting on the couch drinking beer all Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. This so, is a big fan of the garage gym revolution. Now yeah. you get actual opportunity to show and create a great relationship with fitness and weightlifting yeah. for your kids. And that's all they would know. And then they like, you know, and then, uh, you know, I, I talk to them all the time when we're cooking and food and where it's sourced from and how it's made, uh, you know, why we eat this way. And uh, being able to just educate them on every opportunity. And then the big thing is the manners thing. Like, oh, my God. Like, I didn't realize that. Oh, uh, kids' birthday parties? You yeah. See some... Like, uh, dude, we, we had Cashy's fifth birthday. And uh, two of the kids, like, it was pretty funny. We had it at this place called High Five, which has, like, video games and, like, uh, laser tag and stuff. And um, two of the parents literally just pulled up, opened the door, like, pushed the kid out and just drove away. And then the other parents pulled up, pushed the kid out, parked, and then they just walked to the bar and just like, like I'm, I'm over there and these kids are like, basically they, they had a huge whack-a-mole thing. The kid jumped up on top of it and was stomping on the whack-a-mole. I went over there and was like, come here. I was like, dude, if you break that thing, I'm going to break you. And I grabbed him by the arm and I was like looking around. I'm like, where's parents? His parents are in there having drinks and they were probably like, you deal with this kid. So, um, yeah. Uh, but I, like, uh, like cash is in sports. And like I see the way the parents and the kids act. Actually, I volunteered to be an assistant coach for his t-ball. Oh, baseball! Yeah, All right, yeah, for his t-ball and for that. Um, so when Jamie goes to basketball, uh, they have like she she goes to uh, Hill Country Indoor, and so they have like professional coaches, and like she she got a pretty decent coach. Um, and it was funny because uh, um, like I always talked to him, and he was like, "Hey, do you want to sit on the bench?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I was over there, and uh, it was pretty funny as I'm like over there, like coaching the girls up. I'm like, "You got to relax, take your shots, work your fundamentals." And I realized I was like, "You know what? Like this would be fun." So I want to go out and help with T-ball. And I think what I'm nervous about, and I remember my brother said he's like, "Hey, you should volunteer 
because you actually understand a little bit of like the sports, like, you know, sports life and the pathway and how you've done it. And a lot of parents don't. And so there's a lot of angry parents and a lot of parents that are trying to live vicariously through the kids. And if you don't get out there, you know, you're going to end up with some, some a-hole. Oh yeah. So that's kind of why I was like, ah, you know what? I can do it on Saturday mornings. Yeah. I just spoke with Zach Evanish on that specific topic and part of his interview process because his son is a baseball player Mm -hmm. versus a wrestler. He's not too happy about it, but kid's baseball guy. He asked the parent or the the coach if their kid is on the team. Mm. And one of his rules, he doesn't allow his son to play on the team if there's also the coach's son because of past experiences. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. For uh, and he's no. And then you realize that that coach is in it for yeah coaching. Um, the the other one, um, I think, with having daughters, th- this is an interesting one. Uh, like. I think we we think all too often with our with our sons in terms of like uh, manners, respect, shake a hand. But I, I do the same thing with my daughters. I'm like I've shown them like, hey, this is how you shake somebody's hand. You look them in the eye, because unfortunately they're going to go out into the business world, and they need to be treated as equals. And I think a big part of that is like this is how it's done. This is the custom. This is you know this is how we just do things. So I think a big part of that is being able to provide not only respect, but also understand like, hey, like this is not how you act, this is how you act, and understanding those boundaries. And unfortunately, you know, when they're kids, they kind of bounce back and forth, and I think the parents have to be the bumpers. You know, hey, like this is in a consistent message between the mom and dad. So uh, I just, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure every generation has said this. I talked to my mom the other day about this, and she's like, you know, I don't know what, like, like, like what does this world look like in 50 years? It's, it's going to look much different. I'm like, yeah, probably much more different in 50 years than what the world looked like 50 years ago. Right. But like, think about the advancements with everything. I mean, you know, my mom's 80 and she's like, when I was 40, 40 years ago, like, what did that look like? And, uh, and I'm like, it's going to be dramatically different when I'm 80, it's going to look way different. So I think it's, I think it's all exciting. And, but I also think that every generation thinks every other generation is soft or every other generation's crazy. And that's just probably hindsight. But I think as long as, you know, one, as a parent, uh, your kids grow up knowing you love them. Like that's something I tell my daughters all the time. You know, remember daddy loves you. Like uh, I remember reading a book years ago that said if a woman grows up without, uh, like without like her father's love, she'll go out and search for it over and over again. And I remember like somebody sent me like when I would, when, um, I, I got sent a book when I was having twins or somebody found out I was having uh, twin girls and it was like, you know, fatherly advice. And it was like, tell your daughters you love them every day. Cause if you don't and they have a doubt, they'll go out and search for it. And so that was uh, impactful for me, but also like uh, not treating them like little girls, like, Hey, you guys are, you know, you're nine years old. You need to, you know, learn to do this and this. These are things that everybody does. This isn't just a girl task or a boy task. So, and then just, uh, taking them around. Like whenever we have somewhere to go, I'm like, get in the car, you know, like, Hey, well, like, let's, you know, let's take a drive, come with me. Like, you know, we will go to tractor supply and I'm like, I, I make them pick up, uh, they have like 40 and 50 pound, uh, bags of corn we got to get for the deer. Mm-hmm. So I like make them they're like, okay, grab the bag. And then watching them try to wrestle in the cart <laughs> is, is pretty funny. I should film some video of that. But I, I just think like, these are all things that, you know, your kids have an opportunity to be around you. These are the things you teach opposed from them, you know, sitting there watching, you know, YouTube videos of Sniper Wolf. Well, how important is 
teaching them two things. One, how to tell a joke, and two, how to take a joke. Uh, that has been something that we have worked on for years. Uh, the ability to not only tell a joke, so at, at dinner, I think I've told you this, uh, the girls tell jokes, so I got them a joke book, and then if they find a joke, they can tell it during dinner, and it's pretty interesting, uh, like the idea of like big, sp- like big Spoon, Little Dish, like can you take a joke, can you take some razzing, can you tell a joke, can you wait on the delivery, and I'll tell you, uh, my daughter Jameson is actually really funny. Oh, and, I'm well aware. Oh, she's got a funny sense of humor, and she's smart, which contributes to this stuff because I always tell her I'm like hey you and, and I, I told her the other day I'm like we got to get you jujitsu and you got to learn how to fight and she's like why I'm like because somebody's going to punch you in your face and you're not going to know what to do and, <laughs> and so uh she's funny and uh she probably and she, she's tall and so I know she gives these boys fucking headaches and just talks shit to them all the time which is good and she's sharp Killy on the other hand uh is uh she cracks herself up like she starts telling a joke and she usually laughs before the, that. Yeah, before the punchline. But she's not as good. Like uh, she, she's not as water off the duck's back as Jamie is. Well, that's yeah. yin and yang. Great yeah. pair. Yeah. Great team. And then Cashy just tells awful jokes. Now. Oh my God, they're so bad. He would say, well, what did he tell me the other day? He's like, why did the toilet go to the toilet party? And I was like, why? It's like, because they wanted to see it flush. I was like, I appreciate that, but that makes absolutely no sense. There's a joke in there. <laughs> we, like he, he thinks if, uh, if toilet is in the joke, it's funny. And if flush is in there, it's hysterical. And he cracks himself humor. up. Yeah, I get it. Humor. So no, it's, uh, I think one, um, you know, prepare your kids from the day you're not there. You know, when they go out into this world, uh, make sure that they have a skill set where other parents don't look and think their parents must be assholes. You know, teach them to have a good sense of humor, how to take a joke, how to give a joke. Um, you know, teach them to be, you know, kind and, you know, not to be, a, you know, mean spirited, um, you know, big thing. Like I always, I, I talked about the girls all the time. I'm like, you know, one, don't be a bully. And if you see somebody getting bullied, like go bully the bully. That's a big one for us. And uh, for the most part is like, don't ever, don't ever uh, like, you don't want anybody like uh, uh, being like growing up, see how I articulate this, growing up being lazy was like the worst thing. Like I remember my mom and my dad being like, we don't raise lazy kids, get your fucking asses up. And, uh, you know, like it'd be like seven o'clock and my dad's banging on our window, get your fucking lazy asses up. And we'd be out there washing cars on a Saturday, like 7 a.m. And now it's like my kids are dead at 7 a.m. I'm like, I'll let them sleep. But like that stuff of like, don't be lazy, you know, be helpful. Be the first one to, to act like, don't be helpless. That's another one for the daughters, for my girls. Like, like there is no damsel in distress. Don't be helpless. Nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. And uh, for the most part, like you know, like read, uh, be educated. Um, you know, I mean, and just it's all not these only you're telling these kids this. You and Kate are doing a great job representing models. Yeah. Well, my my wife constantly reminds him. She's like, I got two, <laughs> I got two masters in an MBA. <laughs> so she reminds them. The kids are like, I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, I, and, and what's funny is I don't even think they, they necessarily know what I do. Like I, I know that they watch YouTube and they've seen me on YouTube. Oh yeah. Jamie has been burning me and my podcast jokes for a long time. <laughs> She's like, text, you're not very funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She or calls me Daisy. Daisy, you're not funny. <laughs> your you're jokes like, are not funny. You're like, when you get bigger, I'm going to punch you in your throat. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, she, dude, she's a, uh, she's a pretty good basketball player. Uh, we, we got to work the shot. So we got to start 
bust an ass on that. But yeah, I mean, um, uh, I think being a parent is extremely, uh, it's rewarding. I don't think it's for everybody. Like I don't, like I'm not one of those people where it's like, oh, everybody should have kids. No, I don't think everybody should have kids. I think like if you do have kids and you know, you have to invest a lot of time in them. Like it's not something where I kind of lukewarm about it, but I think it's been, I think it's been impactful and it's been uh, rewarding for me to, to be able to like, you know, deal with my kids and then see how I was raised and then realize like, okay, um, you know, here were the mistakes here, this, you know, like I'm not going to perpetuate it. I'm going to try to do better. And I think it's been a really good growth, but also I waited until I was what, like in my early thirties to have kids. I think if I'd had kids in my early twenties, I don't think I would have been a very good father just because I think playing the NFL is extremely selfish. Well, I mean, it's peak performance. It's almost got to be. Well, so I mean, but a lot of guys I played with were probably good parents and and were able to do it for me. I just fucking like it was selfish, and I was t- and I was totally fine to be it. And then all of a sudden, I retired and realized, like, okay, like because I'll tell you this: uh, being a selfish parent is not like those two words probably don't go well together. And I think if you're a selfish person, I think it's better to not have kids because I'll tell you, it's tough being selfish with kids just because they, they just a lot of work takes a lot of time. Like there's not a lot of time for you to, to, you know, nurture your inner child. Unless you can change your mindset. Unless you can change your mindset. All right. Well, cool. I think we smashed it. I won't say ask and answered because we didn't really ask an, an answer a question, but well, we did have a question, but it was more about how to get your kid to sleep when he's teething. And I think we took that in a different direction. Uh, you could always go with, uh, for that guy listening, you could always just go with the age-old one of just rubbing some Jack Daniels on their gums. That one seems to work pretty good. And then we also had a bunch of like uh, ice pops that they used to like cold things that freeze that they used to suck on. But for the most part, teething. Like everybody's like, oh, when your baby comes you know, and you sleep through the night, oh, that's great. No, your baby sleeps at night when its stomach gets big enough to hold enough food. Teething is a whole different animal. And they don't talk about that. Good so, luck. Good job. Well, guys, thanks for joining us on another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John. I'm here with Mr. McQuilkin. And like always, we are answering questions via the hotline. Once again, 929-464-464. 929-ing-ing. Zero. You got it. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!